welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Pray that my speech and my message will not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Through Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. One of the things that's always really frustrating when you're preaching in an Anglican church is you hear all these, you prepare a sermon and then you hear all these beautiful words of God and think, well, why didn't I prepare a sermon on that one, you know? I uh, think it would be very, very easy to preach two or three sermons this morning and you would not like it. (laughs) But I'm sorry, I just have to read and remind you of what was read from Isaiah, which we will not be preaching on. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, (laughs) Jacob. You men of Israel, I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. I will make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth, that the world may know, that the world may know. It is wonderful to be with you. It's been a great weekend. I've had lots of wonderful time with lots of wonderful people. You are a blessed church, and you are under the good and wise care of Father Ben and Lisa and the team that God has brought together here. Thank God for them. If you don't like my sermon today, please listen to Father Ben's from the first service. (laughs) It needed to be heard. As you know, today is confirmation for eight people who are part of this church. They have been well prepared through the foundations course. The preparation is centered in three dimensions. Good content and teaching about lifelong discipleship. The content of the Christian faith and how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Good content, secondly, about the gift of following Jesus as a faithful Bible-believing Anglican, the theological heart of this church and the center of this church and the particular gift that this church is. may not be the only way to follow Jesus, but it is the way I'm following, (laughs) and many of you as well. And then the development of real community is the third component. It was interesting as I heard uh, testimony from the people in the class that said, what was it that meant, meant most to you? And they said, the relationships we formed. Sponsors who committed to love and pray for each person. So the content of the foundations course is Christian faith and discipleship, the Anglican way, and life in community. Pretty great preparation for today. Confirmation is a process where the bishop comes and recognizes and acknowledges that the church has done a good job in preparing people for a life of following Jesus. It's a moment when they're making a statement as well. I'm making a statement, they're making a statement. And the statement that they're making is that I am committed to a serious discipleship and service for Jesus' sake. It's a time when I pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to fulfill both of those promises. In other words, they're saying I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to serve Jesus. So I pray for the Holy Spirit to give them the power to follow Jesus and serve Jesus. And whatever gifts may be associated with that capacity as well. 
It's a time when the confirmands are saying that they accept that God has called them into this particular church and its spiritual authority as we faithfully pass it along. And to enter into the receiving of spiritual authority to be used as all spiritual authority is meant to be used. When you see the operations of spiritual authority in Scripture, it always brings life and hope and healing and love and compassion and light to other people. That's the nature of the authority of God. When we come under his authority, that's what he pours into our life. And then finally, I want to remind you of something else. This is what we often call the ordination of the laity. And I want you to know that's where the action is. <laughs> you know, there are two primary mandates of the church, worship and witness. And the nexus of those two things is the people of God as they come together. And as they are built up in worship and as they are sent out in witness. And the reason we are sent out in witness is because there are still people out there who don't worship. And do you know where the action is in all of that? It is in the laity. The clergy are called to be servants and equippers of the laity so that the laity may do their job in the world. So folks, what's happening today is where the real action is. Hallelujah. I want to talk to you about a central act of discipleship or aspect of discipleship that has become very important to me. And we're going to be ranging through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Hebrews. I think there may be some laying around. If you don't, you may turn on your phone as long as you turn off the ringer. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to take a brief stroll with you through the book of Hebrews. As you turn there, let me remind you of the broad context. Uh, the book of Hebrews is written to people who are primarily converts from Judaism. They were experiencing persecution. Now, specifically, they had not been persecuted to the point of death. That was still coming for the church. But they were experiencing ostracism and ridicule and social rejection and scorn from the, con uh, from the community around them. And that was a new experience for them. Because as Jews, they were a separated and strange minority within the Roman culture, but it had been a protected minority. It had a place. And now as Christians, they had been displaced from Judaism, and so now not only were they now unprotected in the Roman culture, they were rejected by their Jewish community. So it was a very difficult situation. And as a result of this persecution, a number of the people who were the recipients of this letter were considering to, uh, leaving the faith and returning to Judaism. And this book was written with somebody, by somebody who was deeply familiar with Judaism, probably a Jewish convert, certainly, as most Christians were, but not only that, somebody who was well-trained in rabbinic understanding, because he was focused clearly on strengthening their faith in Jesus because he saw Jesus clearly as the fulfillment of all of Judaism. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the completion of Judaism. And so he was saying, don't turn away, keep going. Keep going to the end. Keep going because this is where this whole thing has been headed. This is what our entire calling was meant to end in. We read Psalm 67. If you read it carefully or listened, it is a prayer that God will make his glory known to the nations through the people of Israel. And Jesus is the point, the path through which that will happen to the world. And so the message throughout this book to these people is look to Jesus, see Jesus, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Do not turn away. In a very personal and intimate way, keep 
pursuing Jesus. And that is my message today. In the context of people who are saying, I want to follow Jesus, my message is really simple. Then look at him. See him. Listen to him. Follow him. Make that very, take that very personally. (laughs) And that, I say to all of us. The context of persecution is not yet our story. Not many of us. But at the same time, dear brothers and sisters, we live in a world of suffering and pain and difficulty. As hope-filled and as beautiful as this church is, I would guess that few, if any of you, are under the illusion that life is easy. (laughs) The bad news is relentless. Environmental disasters. Political scene that is shamefully nasty. Shamefully. It's embarrassing. Anger, hatred, division, random violence, another mass murder two days ago. Ethnic and religious persecution, explosions all over the world. When we prayed for the persecuted church in the first service, it was in my mind, I could not, I mean, I was thinking India, Syria, Nigeria, where do I go? We long for a world of justice and integrity, but no matter how advanced we become as a people, materially, technologically, medically, educationally, justice and peace are a distant dream. Folks, it's no better than it's ever been. Sorry, we just get better at figuring out ways how to hurt each other. Then inevitably, pain and difficulty moves off the pages of the news and into our homes. And it becomes very personal. Dare say... It's always personal. Injustice and violence become personal in the form of a sister who was killed by a drunk driver. Or confusion and doubt become personal in the light of a child who will not trust God and follow the faith that we taught them. How many of us in this room experience that? Sin becomes personal in a relentless battle with porn or doubt. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 And I've been ramping up to this one. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He's left nothing outside of his control. The design of God was that man would reign as king, royalty over all of creation, be the agents through which all of creation experienced the glory of God. But the author says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You think? (laughs) Seriously. We do not see humanity crowned with honor and glory as we were created. We see humanity doing an awfully good job of looking like animals, or worse. Verse 9, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, who? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We do not see humanity as he is created to be, but we do see Jesus. And that's the theme of this message. 
we see Jesus. Look at Jesus. See Jesus. Cast your eyes upon Jesus. As the exhortation and teaching of the book unfolds, we are called to see Jesus in two different ways. We are called to see him as the final word of God. The last statement. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the final word. There is no other word. There is no greater word. There's no word beyond Jesus. He is the ultimate word of God, the ultimate revelation of God. Don't look for anybody else. Don't divert. He's the final word. So the book says, see him as the final word. That's right. (laughs) Amen. Amen. That's okay. Thank you. Secondly, this book invites us to see Jesus as our friend the one who can and will help us practically and personally through sufferings and struggles and the injustices and the confusion of life so that we can endure and finish the journey. He's the final word and he's our friend. And I want to focus on that second way of seeing Jesus. I want you to see him as your friend today, your friend in the battle. He says in Matthew, come to me all ye that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Those are the words of a friend. God says in Isaiah, I am your help. I am your help. I'm the one. I'm your friend. And that's what this book tells us. Last fall in my personal devotions, as I was studying the book of Hebrews, I saw something I'd never put together before. The sufferings of Jesus as a man deal with the suffering, with every suffering I face as a man, as a human being. And in all of his sufferings, the sufferings that are common to all women and men in this room, Jesus directly offers himself as a friend to us and a helper to us as we experience those sufferings. That's what this book says. What are the sufferings of Jesus? Well, we've already seen in chapter 2, verse 9, that he suffered death. That's kind of the header statement. We're going to come back to that later on because it kind of throughout the over umbrella is that he suffered death and that kind of encompasses it all. Okay, but there are some more specific things that break down along the way. Because God laid out for him a path of suffering. It says in verse two, verse 10 of chapter two, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things should exist in bringing many sons to glory, many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And what the logic of the book is this, you live in a suffering world and if God is going to rescue from you from a suffering world, he's going to send a savior who enters into that suffering world and meets you in your suffering and brings you out of it and brings you through it. And then the book goes on to describe four specific places where the sufferings that we experience are entered into by Jesus. And these are not necessarily in strict chronological order in a timeline of Jesus's life, but they are how they are revealed in the book. And I think we got to listen, pay attention because the first suffering or point of suffering where Jesus has entered in is he has endured our temptations. Because the suffering that we really have to battle with, I think most personally, is our own susceptibility to sin. 
Chapter 2, verse 18. Let me go back to verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He, he really had, to, I mean, kind of, the, kind of the core of it is he had to deal with the sin problem, right? He had to get rid of the problem between us and God so we could be reconciled and be restored so that we can have some hope of freedom and victory in this life. And the barrier that stood between us and a holy God, because no matter how much God loves us and is a friend, he is still a holy God, folks. You can't play games. Even though he's coming to us as his friend, as our friend, he is still a holy God. You can't blow him off because he's God. Sin had to be dealt with. And Jesus came to deal with sin for he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted to sin just like you and I are. He was tempted to doubt just like you and I are. He was tempted to give up just like you and I are. He was tempted to fold it in just like you and I are. In fact, he was tempted to the greatest degree of any human being ever faced because he's the only person who never gave in, who resisted to the end. So he can help us with the temptation. When I think about the difficulties and challenges of life, you know what the issue that's always closest to home and the difficulties and challenges of life? Me. <laughs> that's closest to home. The internal attack on my faith, the relentless temptation, the accusations that I live with in the secrets of my heart. The most constant battle with evil for me is not out there. It's in here. And it can be exhausting and discouraging. How many times do I have to face that one? How many times do I have to say no? How many times do I have to remind myself of what I believe in the face of that one? How many times do I have to admit, yes, Sally, I blew it again, you know? I long for deep and lasting transformation. My wife tells me that my perspectives on myself are wrong, which makes me really happy to know. She says I'm a different man than I was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And I hope and believe she's a, that she's right. And in fact, I do, because I know God promises to change me. God promises to walk with me. And in fact, some of the more obvious and observable sins and temptations have quieted down over the course of my life. Hallelujah. Praise God. He's faithful to me. And there are sins that have genuinely lost their savor. Praise God. Man, aren't you glad? At the same time, the deeper systemic issues of pride and anger and the desire to indulge the flesh in acceptable ways still hang around, and I still have to be aware that sin can take root in my soul in very acceptable ways. Am I the only one who battles this? <laughs> the promise of Hebrews 12, excuse me, 2.18, is that Jesus understands. <laughs> he knows and he's always, it says specifically, he is always there to come to my help in the battle with temptation. So St. Augustine says, just at the time when you believe that things are going inside of you, that the best thing to do is run as far away from God as you can, that's the very moment when you need to run as fast as you can to him. He just says it more sophisticated than I just did. 
He is always ready to be a faithful high priest. What does a high priest do? He tells us who God is and he speaks to God about us. He prays for us and he communicates to us. He helps me. He assures me of the beauty and the integrity of righteousness. He forgives me and absolves me when I fall. Jesus suffered and endured temptation to sin. Therefore, he's a faithful and high priest to help me when I face temptation. The second suffering that is listed is this. Jesus suffered the limitations of humanity and the demands of submission and obedience to God. The setting aside of his will. You remember at the garden, there was a man who said, not thy will, but mine be done. There was another garden in which a man said, not my will, but thine be done. And it's all the difference in the world. Chapter 5, verse 7 is speaking of that second garden. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, again, the immediate reference is Gethsemane, but it is really a simply, that's simply the final step of a lifelong journey of radical and submi- uh, radical submission and obedience as a man to the will of God. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that Jesus was fully a man, which meant he was also a child and a boy and a teenager. He did not spring out of Mary's womb fully formed. He grew up. He learned the path of submission. On the human level, I don't understand how that works. That's a mystery. But it says it, and so I believe it. He learned to submit. He learned to trust. He learned to obey, which is another way of saying he went through an entire life of testing. And he learned, and he was formed by prayer and by worship and by submission to God. So that by the time his ministry began, he can say, I only do what the Father tells me to do. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The works that I do are the Father's works. Now, I'm not pretending that his learning curve or formation was anything like you or mine is because he was not dealing constantly with the malformation of his soul like you and I do. But there was a true process going on here. And you can read about it in the Gospels. Jesus, in his incarnation, laid aside his independent capacities of God, the Son, and lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and sought the will of the Father in prayer and learned to follow God by reading his Bible. Prayer and Bible. We keep talking about that here. And he did the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no different path for you and me to be human beings. Did you know that? And I also want you to think about the fact that Jesus did not live in a pristine antiseptic world. Palestine was a poor, hard-scrabble place. There were food shortages and water shortages and poverty and illness and demonic activity. It was enemy-occupied territory. So they had the injustice of political crimes being committed around them. It was filled with political factions and camps that were radically different answers for the ills of the world that battled for the support of the people. You think Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians are crazy? You should have been a Jew back then. I tell you what, they killed each other like crazy. It was rife with people who raped the economy for their own personal gain. Remember guys like Zacchaeus? 
It was a crossroad of immigration and ethnic tensions. Samaritans, Phoenicians, Romans. Marriage must not have been all that easy because people are people. And many of the disciples of Jesus were single. So marriage hadn't worked out for them in some reason. So don't... Palestine in Jesus' time was not a Hallmark movie set, guys. Okay? So Jesus, walking through that, had to constantly say to himself, what is God's wisdom and will in a thousand different settings in a very real world? Dear brothers and sisters, that's why it says in chapter 5, verse 10, that he is designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. A Melchizedekian high priest is a human high priest, a priest for all humanity, so that he can help us as we learn to submit to God and to trust him in the course of normal human life. Hallelujah. Jesus suffered the limitations of humanity and the demands of submission. Therefore, he's a faithful friend and a high priest on my journey, on a lifelong journey. And you can start to scroll through in your mind where you need that right now. Finally, excuse me, not finally, number three, Jesus suffered the shame of rejection and ridicule and the mockery of injustice. Chapter 12, turn over. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every sin and every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And this is the phrase I want you to grab onto, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What a word. What a word. Whatever ridicule and rejection and mockery and scorn and injustice you might imagine enduring as a person who follows Jesus, Jesus has been there first. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this moves the conversation very, very much into the pain of, uh, direct, uh, into, the, into the realm of pain and suffering that is heaped upon us, the shame, the scorn, the hatred of people. And so if that's your story, in other words, the suffering may be your own internal battles. The suffering may be just simply learning how to obey and figure out how to do the will of God in the life that we have. And those two things are very real. But there may be some of us along the way that suffer the scorn and the hatred of others. There are plenty of Christians who have. And even then, even then, Jesus has been there. In Luke, in the garden, Jesus says to the priests and the guards who came to arrest him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let it go. Unleash it. Pour it out. And he, Satan, threw everything he could. Abandonment. Do you feel that? Injustice. Do you feel that? Betrayal. Has that happened to you? Hatred. Has that happened to you? Loneliness. Has that happened to you? Rejection, pain. Imagine your worst fears of exposure emotionally, mentally, physically. Understand that Jesus has been there. The cry of dereliction expresses it all. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Have you ever felt that? 
But can I say something to you? You can never say, God doesn't understand how lonely I feel. God doesn't understand how abandoned I feel. God doesn't understand the rejection I feel because he does. And Jesus went through that shame and blew out on the other side and said, it is not the final word because the final word is resurrection. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Of course, in the end, step four, Jesus suffered real death. And one of the things I love and it has been reminded uh, to me in my conversations a couple of times this week is just the fact that Jesus demonstrates to us that the truths of God are not just things that we think in our minds, but they took on flesh to the point of death and resurrection. And it really happened. And in this final suffering of death, real death, human death, blood shed, Jesus rose. Jesus rose. So that we know that the worst thing that can happen to us is not the worst thing. <laughs> there is no more worst thing. Hear me. There is no more worst thing. So as the book ends, having described for us Jesus who has suffered temptation, the burden of our humanity, shame and rejection and ridicule and death itself, the book ends again, rounding back, come to Jesus. Look at him. See him. Fix your eyes upon him. Think about him. Consider him. And as it ends, I can do no better than to simply read what has already been read to you in chapter 12, verse 18. You did not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You've not come to Mount Sinai. It's a place that was so terrifying. The, the declaration was because of the holiness of God that's being revealed. Even a beast that touches the mountain shall be stoned. It was so terrifying, the sight, that Moses said, the guy who, could, who was close to God said, I'm trembling with fear. And the people are saying, don't talk to me anymore. Not because God is a cruel, is cruel. He was the one who was inviting them, but he said, God is holy. And the power of the holiness of God was overwhelming to people who are unholy. But that's not the mountain we've come to. But instead, we've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Folks, we've come to a party. We've come to people, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We've come to God, the judge of all, which is a statement that says he's made the final judgment. He's declared what is. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and we've come to, come on, Jesus. That's what the whole book's about. Coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I can do no better than to say amen.
Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.